Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor John Gate. You know, Jesus was a master teacher, and he adapted his style of teaching to his audiences. Sometimes he was quite direct and spoke the truth. Other times he told stories, used metaphors, and left it for his hearers to work out for themselves the message that was there. But in all his teaching, Jesus took people from what was familiar to them to what was unfamiliar. He took them from what they knew to what they didn't know. He took them from what could be seen to the unseen and from the physical to the heavenly. Jesus was a master teacher and so he spoke much in his stories and parables about common things we have lots of common things and many things we have today are similar to what they had in the days of Jesus but many things are different too and it's as we get a glimpse into the world of Jesus the culture of Jesus the familiar things to the people in Jesus day that we start to get another window into the messages of Jesus. He spoke about vines and branches. He spoke about trees and fruit, of sheep and lambs, of goats, of money, of debt, of light and darkness. And so it goes on. Things which are familiar to us too. Therefore, the better we understand the culture of Jesus' day, the better we will appreciate the message. And he took the marriage culture of his day. And he used it to illustrate a grand truth, a truth which we have not yet realized, a truth which the people in Jesus' day look forward to. In our Christian culture today, in our Western Christian culture, we have a traditional way of doing marriage. And there are three parts to it. There's the religious bit, the legal bit, and the social bit. And it usually starts when the bride comes down the aisle on her father's arm, comes to the front, there's a prayer, maybe a scripture reading, a special item, uh, there's a short sermon. That's the religious bit. We ask God's blessing on this union. And then the young couple go to one side, usually in the vestry or to a table in public, where they sign their lives away, where they fulfill the legal requirements of our government that's the legal bit and then we go outside and it all starts with pictures and then we go off to some venue where we eat drink and be merry and uh, they call that what do they call it wedding breakfast breakfast is the first meal you have after you wake up and so they go to the that's the social bit but back in the beginning it was not like that there was only one part to the, the, the church service, and that was the religious bit. Scripture says, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him male and female. And he put the man to sleep and took a rib from his side, and from it he made a woman. And he brought the woman to the man and said to Adam, Adam, this is your wife. Take it or leave it. No, he didn't say that either. <laughs> Adam, this is your wife 
your wife. What God has joined together, what I have joined together, let no man put asunder. There was no legal bit. There were no governments, no paperwork to fill in. There was no society to have a social get-together. I guess the animals were interested because they all had their partners. Now they could smile too because Adam had his partner. But in the days of Jesus, it was different again. There was no religious bit. There were religious overtones through it, but it was mainly legal and social. They were the two main parts of the wedding ceremony in Jesus' day. And for our message this morning from God's Word, I am going to recreate in your thinking by telling you a story of a typical wedding in the days of Jesus. Now we can be very, very certain that this is the way that most marriages were performed. You know, even today in our weddings that we have in Christian churches today, we follow a similar pattern, but no two are identical. There's always little changes that the bride and the groom want to make. And so it was in Jesus' day. No two were exactly the same, but there was a very clear pattern. And we know this from historians. Archaeology has dug up a lot of ruins which have thrown light on the marriage custom in the days of Jesus. And so I'm going to tell you a story, um, a strange story. Then we're going to read some texts. And I'm not going to comment much on those texts. It's going to be inductive, if you like. I'll tell you a story, read some texts. You can put two and two together. If it doesn't make four, then you've missed something today. And to finish with, we'll just make some observations of this story and the way the texts fit in together. So to set the scene for you, a typical Jewish home in the days of Jesus would be mother and father, um, the children, um, even some of the married children would still be at home, particularly the sons. You know, they say one of the indicators of our society today is that children leave home three times. They leave home once to be independent. And once they get out there, they realize how much it costs to live alone. So they come home again. So that's, then there's a second leaving. But it's usually about three times by the time you finally get rid of them. Well, that's the way it was. It was an extended family. We're kind of obsessed with the nuclear family, but they were extended families. And we'll pick up the scene in a typical home, and we'll come back to this scene um, in our story this morning. And it's in a small room, which is a kitchen-come-dining room. Not a lot of light in there, some little windows, um, a small door that you had to crouch to get through. In the corner there was a fireplace and some tables where food was prepared. On the walls there were little oil lamps, um, which was the lighting inside. And in the center of the room there was virtually nothing. Maybe a low table if they were a fairly wealthy family. And in this room, come sunset... The father would call the family together, his wife would come, the children would come. If they're grown-up children, uh, the sons with their wives and their children would come. And it could be quite a gathering as they would sit in a circle around the, uh, on the floor or if it was as mealtime, they'd put a cloth down, they'd sit around on the floor uh, around the cloth. And the first thing that would happen is the father would make sure everyone was there, then they would hold hands, maybe sing a psalm, Father would say a prayer, then they would have the evening meal together, and it was a very social time. 
There was no television to distract them. There was no radio to listen to. It was, it was real family time. And so they would sit there and story. Afterwards, the, the uh, younger children or grandchildren would be the first that were taken off uh, to bed. And uh, the adults, the older folks, would be left there. And they would just chat about the events of the day or the latest news that they heard spoken about at the well or some rumor out of the tabernacle or whatever it might have been. They would just tell stories, catching up on a current event. Well, this particular night, to start our story, everyone has gone to bed except the father and his son, his youngest son, and we'll call him Joseph. It's an easy name to remember, and I've got to remember it through the story. So father and Joseph are left. The others have gone to bed. It's maybe 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, our time uh, now, and they're sitting there together. And the father begins to talk, and he says, uh, Joseph, my boy, uh, yes, Dad, he says, I've been thinking. You've finished your education. You're doing well at your trade. Uh, you're, you're of a good age now. Um, I know you love children, and uh, it's time that you took unto yourself a wife. <laughs> well, he'd been waiting for this for quite a while because most marriages in those days were arranged by the parents. And we find that through Jew Jewish culture. Uh, stories come to your mind immediately of a father sending off his servants to bring back a wife for his son. Talk about married at first sight. It's the way it was with many Bible characters. So this father, we will say, is very progressive. And uh, he is going to offer his son... Thank you. He's going to offer his son the opportunity to have some input. And so he says, uh, Joseph, um, is there any young lady that has taken your attention that, you know, you uh, just might give your heart a flutter? Well, he didn't have to think long because from his childhood days, he and a young lady by the name of Mary had been in primary and junior Sabbath school together. That, that just got on so well together. Um, and then they were up into pathfinders, and so there was a lot of outdoor activity that they enjoyed together. Then it was AYs and uh, youth programs. Um, he said, Dad, Mary, I think Mary is just beautiful, and uh, I'd, like, I'd like Mary to be my wife. Well, the father hadn't thought of that, and he sits in silence for a moment, and then he begins to nod, and he says, Yeah, I like that. Mary comes from a God-fearing family. They are regular at, at, uh, at tabernacle worship, at synagogue worship. And uh, yeah, that's, they're a very respected family. I think this would be a good match. And so together they kind of agree that Mary would be the one. So over the next days and weeks, Joseph's father makes it his business to just happen to be where Mary's father is. And as they talk... The conversation keeps coming back to what a great young fellow Joseph is. He'd make a wonderful husband. And he just loves children. And after a while, Mary's father, the penny drops and he says, I can see what you're getting at. Mary and Joseph. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. And so the fathers agree that this, this will be the match. And so they, in discussions together over a period of time, they set a day and a date when the marriage will be contracted. And so 
we now move to the, to the date, the day and the date and the place where the wedding is contracted. Joseph and his father, along with uh, some strange companions and a few family members, meet at the city gate with Mary and her father and a few of the close relatives. Now they meet at the city gate because in ancient times when cities were walled, the main city gate is what we would call the CBD, the Central Business District. That's where it all happened. That's where the tax collector's office was. That's where Matthew would have been when Jesus came and tapped him on the shoulder and said, follow me. It was there that they taxed the travellers as they came and went in their camel trains. It was there that the, the people who gardened outside the city, because there's no space in the city, they would garden outside, they'd bring their produce to the, to the, to the gates and there would be the food markets. Uh, there were the law courts. Uh, it was a very busy place and a very interesting place. And so they meet at the appointed day and time at the city gate. And the first thing that happens is the two fathers walk up and there's much bear hugging and slapping on the back and shaking of hands and happiness and they do it all around and then the next thing, the next part of the ceremony begins and it's, it's quite strange. Joseph reaches into his cloak and he pulls out a little vessel, a little vessel in which is red grape juice, red grape juice. And uh, as he steps forward with the family standing around, Mary also steps forward. And the closest parallel that we would have to this today in our marriage system is when the young couple take their vows. And this is how they'd take their vows. Joseph takes this little flask which contains red grape juice and he would pass it across to Mary. Now red grape juice is a powerful symbol in Jewish culture. Uh, it was used uh, as a healing agent. It was used as an antiseptic. It was because it's the color of blood. It had a very strong relation, connection with life. It was used in the Jewish culture, much in religious services. So Joseph faces Mary and he passes across the little flagon of red grape juice. And although nothing is said, what he is saying in effect is Mary this is my blood. The life is in the blood. This is my life. I am giving it to you. Will you take it? Will you take it and drink it? Thus taking the wine, the grape juice, into yourself and it will become part of you. Will you take my life and let it be a part of your life? Now, if Mary just reached over with the back of her hand and hit it and knocked it out of it, that would be bad news. But no, that doesn't happen. Mary reaches across and she takes it. And her receiving of this little flask of grape juice is saying, Joseph, I acknowledge that this represents your life. I take you and your life into my life. It will become part of me. And she drinks part of it. She then takes the little flagon and she repeats the vows back to Joseph. This is my life. This is my blood. Will you take it and take my life into you so that your life, my life is yours? And so Joseph takes it and he drinks from it. After that is done, again, there's much handshaking and back slapping and hugging and all the rest of it because now Joseph and Mary 
are legally married in the culture of their time. Everyone has witnessed it. They have taken their, powers, their, their vows publicly and then a very strange thing happened. Strange because it's not the way we do things and I guess we're glad it doesn't happen this way too because Mary would then go with her father. I skipped one little part. Early on when they met, Joseph's father would have brought with him these strange companions and strange things. The strange companions were four sheep and a yoke of oxen because a part of the contract was the, the groom's parents giving to the bride's parents a dowry, a gift of, of well-being, a wish of um, harmonious relationships between the two. There was an acknowledgement uh, within this that the family was now going to be short of one worker, as it were, because up until the marriage time, Mary would have been involved in as a shepherdess or working in the vineyards, whatever it might have been. Now she was going to belong to another family. So Joseph's father would have given the dowry to Mary's father. Uh, and in cultures today, many cultures today still do this. In Melanesia, um, it's become known by a derogatory term, I believe, as bride price. It was not a buying of the bride. It was a gift of goodwill between two families. Uh, and so it ought still to be, and, and in Papua New Guinea, they struggle to maintain that. But anyway, at this time, once these, the marriage is contracted, the dowry has been given, Mary with her father goes back to her father's home and Joseph with his father and their rallies go back to Joseph's father's home. And so the wedding is complete. There is no honeymoon as we refer to honeymoon. There is, however, in Scripture, the Old Testament refers to a time that a young couple from the time they are married, the young man was exempt from military service for 12 months. He didn't have to go to war for 12 months. And there was a reason for that. It wasn't for a honeymoon because he wasn't on a honeymoon in those 12 months. He was busy doing other things. So what we're going to do now in the story is skip across to Joseph's home and just be a fly on the wall and see what happens there. Then we'll go across to Mary's home and see what is happening there. This is a time of waiting. Because from the time they left, no one knows when the, marriage is, when, the, yeah, when the marriage is going to come together. They've gone back to their homes. No one knows. Joseph doesn't know. Mary doesn't know. Their parents don't know. It's Joseph's father who's going to make the call on this one. So Joseph goes back to his father's home. We come back to the, to the, the dining room this evening. About 10 o'clock, maybe a bit later... The families have all gone. There's been a lot to talk about today is because Joseph is now married. He's a married man, but there's no Mary there. So the custom was in those days that the groom, the young man, would bring his new wife home to live with his mum and dad. <laughs> Aren't we glad that still doesn't happen today? He would bring his wife home to live with him in his father's home. And so because the, the houses and rooms were small, and they had to be because you had to wall the city and there was a limited space for houses, so houses were small, uh, but families were big. And so when the first son was married and he said to his father, when I bring my wife home, where do I put her? He said, well, Simeon, when you bring your wife home, there's going to be no space for her. You're going to have to put an extension out the back on the north side. Just, you can put it there, a couple of rooms there. 
So Simeon went to work and he built a couple of rooms. Then when he brought his wife home, they lived in that, in that extension. When the next one, uh, Reuben, um, was married, he says, where do I bring my wife? And he's, the father says, well, uh, Reuben, you're going to have to put an extension on. There's no space anywhere else. So on the south side, he puts an extension, a couple of rooms there. And this is very interesting because archaeologists in many places, particularly Corazon um, and uh, by the Red Sea um, have brought up many of these buildings which have got these extensions on them. And they're clearly extensions because each one is marked by different workmanship. You can see different stones, different ways, the ways they were laid. And what they would do, they would put an extension out. Finally, it would go across the back in their allotment and then they would have to go up. And so you would be left with a little atrium, a little courtyard, if you like, in the centre where the stairs would go up to these various rooms. So this night, Joseph says to his dad, well, when I bring Mary home, where are we going to be? And he says, well, all the ground floor is taken. You're going to have to go up. You're going to have to build yours on the first floor above um, Reuben's, maybe out the back, uh, above Reuben's. And so Joseph now has a clear vision of what needs to be done before he can bring Mary home. So he goes to work. He is flat out. He's down to the markets early to get the best stone and the best timber. You can see him walking through the streets carrying these stones and timber day after day. Then he begins to, at night, sit down and draw up plans and how big the wind, everything like that. He was just absorbed in it. And slowly it begins to take place. Over weeks, over months, he works to build this extension uh, on the house. We're back after tea again in the dining room. Everyone has gone to bed and Joseph who's tired and exhausted from the day's work. He turns to his father and he says, can I go and get Mary tonight? Well, this is not the first time he'd asked that and he knew what the answer would be because the father had only one question. Is the extension finished? Well, just about. The windows are there, but there's no shutters in it yet. <laughs> We've got a door, but there's nothing swinging there yet. Well, the father says, that's not good enough. Mary's too good a wife to have something shipshod like that. It's got to be finished to the last T. Well, he knew that, but it was a good try. And so it goes on, maybe five months, six months, seven months. And Joseph attends to every last final detail. Meanwhile, the father is in touch very casually with uh, Mary's father and rallies and he's got his ear tuned as to what Mary's doing. And uh, one day he hears at the well that Mary's wedding gown's all finished, the bridesmaids are all ready and everything that would be expected of a bride is done. And Joseph's extension is just about done too. So another night, just after tea, everyone's gone to bed about 10 o'clock. The father begins to speak and he says, Joseph, and Joseph who again is just physically and emotionally exhausted from all the work, has just sunk down on the floor half asleep. And he says, yes, Dad? He says, I went out and had a look at your extension today. Oh, yeah. Nothing new about that. 
His father had been keeping a close eye on this for a long time. He knew that. And he said, son, I want to affirm you for doing a good job. I've checked the square on the walls. It's plumb lined. Beautifully done. The walls are rendered nicely. Where did you get the whitewash from for the walls? It's beautiful. You've done a really good job and I'm proud of you, son. Ah, oh, thanks, Dad. And after a pause, the father says, Joseph, yes, Dad, you can go and get Mary tonight. Well, someone would think he'd sat on a, on a tack or an electric spark or something. All of a sudden, he's awake. He's got more energy than he knows what to do with. He jumps up. He says, now, really? Now, yes, son, you can go and get married tonight. It's 10 o'clock, going 11 o'clock. Now, that's really strange for us, isn't it? But that's the way it was done in Bible times. The groom always went and got his bride at night. At night. I've, I've preached this sermon a few times, and it's never the same twice. For those of you who've heard it before. But you know, it wasn't always the case that a city girl would marry a city boy or a country girl would marry a country boy. Sometimes a country boy in a town out here, a wall city or a wall town out here, would marry someone in Jerusalem with its big walls. And the marriage service, or the, when the groom went to get his bride, involved the opening of gates. And if you want to have a new insight into Psalm 24, read that in connection with Christian marriage, the opening of the gates and the coming of the bridegroom. So Joseph is up. He's full of life now. He, he lights the little, as many lights as he can. He goes and knocks on all the doors, Reuben's door, Simeon's door. The kids are all asleep and he's yelling out, I'm going to get married tonight. We're leaving in half an hour. Leaving in half an hour. Hurry up. He goes outside, runs down the street, knocks on doors because he's got all these musicians ready. Musicians were a part of it. The main one was the horn blower, blew a ram's horn, and he led the procession. He would knock on his door, up, we're leaving in half an hour. So we'd go around, and the word quickly spread through the community. Rallies and friends, those who were participating, and about half past 11, 12 o'clock maybe, there's a great commotion outside, there are lights burning, and Joseph comes out with his father, and they begin to make their way down the streets of old Jerusalem towards Mary's home. The one leading the way was the one blowing the ram's horn. And that was a sure sign in the city that a marriage was taking place. Someone was going to get their bride tonight. Behind them and scattered through the whole group were those holding their torches, their oil lamps. They would be holding them up high. Behind them would come the, the musicians playing timbrels and stringed instruments. And uh, there would be lots of music. Behind them were those who were doing the dancing. That wasn't an Adventist wedding. And they were coming behind and they were dancing. They were happy. They, this was a time of great rejoicing. And so this great procession would make its way down the streets of old Jerusalem towards Mary's place. Mary knew that it was going to catch her by surprise. This it was just the way it was. You didn't know when. It was going to come as a surprise. So for the first few weeks, Mary was busy at home learning what you do now to care for house. Uh, she spent her time with her mother or the other significant women in the family, her aunt, her uh, sisters-in-law, etc., the, the wives of her brothers who'd come home to live there, and she would be taught all the fine details of caring for home and caring for children and the grinding of the flour and, the, and all the rest of it. She would be skilled in doing this as well as preparing her, 
her wedding dress and getting her bridesmaids ready, making, every, making sure everything was ready. So for the first few weeks, months, Mary slept well. <laughs> she had a lot to do. But then as after a few months, she started to get a bit on edge because she knew that she'd done most of what she had to do and there wasn't much more to do and she was just wondering, oh, I wonder how the extension's going. I wonder if that's finished yet. So when Mary would go to sleep of a night and put her head on the pillow, it was a very gentle touch because every sound that was audible to her, she would raise her head from the pillow and listen. If it's only a dog barking, forget it. But if it was a ram's horn, it just might be coming in this direction. And so she would listen, yeah, it's a ram's horn. She would go over to the windows and open the shutters and, ah, but it's going in the other direction. And sadly, she'd go back to bed. It's not tonight. But another night, she hears a horn, she hears a noise, numerous dogs are barking. And as she listens on her bed, the sound is getting closer. That's a good sign. So she gets up, opens the shutters, the cool evening breeze blows the curtains aside and she listens. And yes, it's a ram's horn. And as she listens, it's coming closer. She can hear the singing. Then she hears the words, Joseph is coming for Mary. Joseph is coming for Mary. Be ready. And so this is it. Mary's been waiting for this night. She's up. She's around knocking on the extensions in her home, calling her mum and dad outside, getting the, bride, the bridesmaids up, getting them dressed, getting the batteries for their torches, all of these things, getting ready. Joseph will be here in no time. And so maybe about one o'clock in the morning, maybe half past one, two o'clock in the morning, finally Joseph arrives. And what a great, what a great meeting this is. If in your mind's eye, if you can just imagine one of these little Jewish homes and a great crowd outside it and there's a knock on the door and as the door opens, there is Mary dressed in all her glory, ready for her wedding, ready for her marriage and behind her are the bridesmaids and the, fa the rooms are just packed with people who are ready for this marriage and so they come out into the streets and now you get two families joined together together with twice as many musicians, twice as many singers, all the families together, and there's a great commotion now. Joseph and Mary together, as husband and wife, make their way back through the city streets. Again, the ram's horn leading the way. And the torches swaying, and the singing, twice as much noise this time as it goes on. And as um, you can just imagine... Come outside the city where Mary is coming from a little village into Jerusalem. And as they approach Jerusalem at night, the city gates are locked for protection. And the call goes out, open the gates. Joseph is here. The king is here. Who is the king of glory? Psalm 24, open the gates. When Joseph comes home with his bride, who is the king of glory? It's the Lord of hosts. And here's Joseph kind of in in every wedding was reenacting this great event when the great bridegroom comes to get his bride. And so they make their way back through to Joseph's father's house where everything is in preparation. John chapter 2, the marriage at Cana. This whole scenario would have taken place. There were barrels of wine, grape juice around for, for the wedding. 
and they run out because these festivities didn't go for a couple of hours. People weren't looking at their watches saying, wish these speeches weren't so long, I want to go home. Now, these went for a week, up to 10 days. The ceremony and the socializing where these two families have come together. There was a lot of culture that went on in that time and it was at that time that the marriage was finally consummated. And Joseph and Mary lived happily ever after. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew, the 26th chapter. And we're going to move quickly through these texts because it's over to you now to make the connection. Matthew chapter 26, verse 29. Jesus is sitting with his disciples Thursday evening before the crucifixion and he does something strange. He takes a cup and he says, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is poured out for many. Drink from it, all of you. Now, those words were powerful words. They were the words that were spoken at the city gates. They were the words that were spoken at the marriage vows. And you can just imagine Peter looking at Andrew saying, does he think this is a wedding? Because this was all wedding symbolism. John 14, a very well-known passage for us. In John chapter 14 and verse 2. And we're just going to take a part of it here at this stage. John 14 verse 2, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. You know, that's what Joseph said to Mary after they had exchanged the cup. As they're about to leave, he goes over and puts his arm around Mary and says, in my father's house, there's plenty of space. I'm going home to get a room ready for you. Very familiar talk. And Jesus says to his disciples again on this Thursday night, just before he was to leave them, in my father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. Oh, that was so significant. That was so meaningful to the people in Jesus' day. In Matthew 24, verse 36, and in again verse 44, Matthew 24 foretells the second coming of Jesus and the many signs that we would see in the world. And in Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus says of his second coming, No one knows the day nor the hour, only the Father. That was marriage talk. That was common knowledge that when a young couple got married, no one knew the wedding day. It was the father's call. It was the father's call. Matthew 25 and verse 6. This is the very next chapter. And this is one of those instances where a chapter division breaks the natural flow. Matthew 24 talks about the signs and the second coming. Matthew 25 talks about how to be ready. And it's the story here of the... Uh, we refer to as the ten five wise and the five unwise. Matthew 25, verse 6. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. That's what Mary calls out. That's the message that goes out around Mary's family. The bridegroom is here. Go ye out to meet him. Very common language. Again in John 14, verse 3. As Jesus was about to leave his beloved disciples, and as Joseph goes home 
to his father's home when he left Mary, he says, I will come again, said Jesus to his disciples, and receive you unto my father's house, receive you unto myself, to the father's house to live with me. You know, as I read scripture, to me this is one of the most unmistakable, clear passages of scripture. Jesus said, I will come again. Brothers and sisters, I've hung my whole life and my ministry and my hope for the future on the fact, the promise of Jesus. I will come again. There's no doubt about it. His other promises have been fulfilled to a T. And this one will not be any different. Jesus is coming again. In Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9, and I'm summarizing these because our time is, <coughs> our time is running. Revelation 19, 6 to 9 gives us the picture of when the family of earth, Mary's family, if you like, go up to meet Joseph's family, Jesus and the, our relatives in heaven, you know, the, the angels and the family in heaven and earth finally get together. And the beautiful passage in Revelation 19, uh, 19 verses 6 to 9, it says, The wedding of the Lamb has come. This is the time when the, the table is set, as it were, for the wedding breakfast, when we will see more than what we see with our eyes. We'll experience things that we've never experienced before. We're going to be with Jesus. Mary is home with Joseph. This promise of Jesus reflects the marriage culture of the day and Jesus was speaking right into the heart of people's thinking in, right into the heart of what was so near to them Revelation 21 verses 10 to 14 it says that he showed me the city the new Jerusalem you know the mansion that he went to prepare for us was not just bricks and mortar it was a city a poor square city, a holy of holies, if you like, because God dwells there. And he's prepared a place in that, in that city for us. Our names are on it. Your name is on it. And it's ours for the taking of saying yes to Jesus. The world will do all it can to distract us, to get our eyes off the promise, to get our eyes off what Joseph has said. We need to make sure that daily we fix our eyes on Jesus and that we're ready for that day. A couple of observations in closing. It strikes me as very pertinent that Jesus should choose a relational institution in culture. He should choose marriage in which to anchor the second coming truth. You see, marriage is about relationship. Marriage is about commitment. Marriage is about love. And the second coming is not just one of 28 fundamentals. The second coming is the meeting of lovers. It's the one that you commune with morning and evening that you finally see in person. Oh, what a day that would be. The second coming is a grand thing that we look forward to. It tells me, the second coming tells me, and I hear Jesus saying, I love 
you. I love you. And it's not just one use. The more I read scripture, the more I see the overtones of the local marriage culture coming through. Over and over, Jesus impressed it upon his disciples. The second coming is when I come to get my loved ones. I love you. I want you to be ready. And there's a theological angle as well. You know, there's a, a counterfeit teaching of the second coming where the saints are whipped away, but then Jesus comes the second time, they say, and he comes to live on earth here for a thousand years. The marriage culture of Jesus' day did not have Joseph going to live with Mary. Joseph comes and gets Mary and takes her back to his father's home. And when Jesus comes, there is no secret rapture. Every eye will see him. Every ear will hear the ram's horn blast. In fact, the ram's horn is so clear that it even wakes the sleeping dead in Christ. And they are called forth to go with him. I, the, 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 the basis of much of this sermon comes from a book written by a good Christian, I'm sure, a Baptist gentleman who believed in the rapture. And as I read it, I just shook my head and said, God, what a beautiful story. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And the message to us is that we are Mary. We are still in the world. We are in that preparation and waiting time. Ours is to watch and to wait and prepare and to listen for what is happening. The world tells us that Jesus is coming soon. In the actual Christmas story, Joseph and Mary were in the situation of having been to the city gate. They were, in the sight of their culture, married as husband and wife. But Joseph was still back at the carpenter's shop. Mary was still with her parents or her family, closest who were living. Everybody knew it had been a public thing, and then word gets out, Mary's pregnant. That is the most scandalous thing that could have happened in that society in that day. And the angel intervened and said, Joseph, she's a good girl. Take her to be your wife. And so we know the story, and that's how Jesus came to be with us. The ram's horn, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. It was all enacted out in every marriage in old Jerusalem in the time of Jesus and his disciples. It's no coincidence that Jesus did his trade in a carpenter's shop. He was a builder. And when he said, I go to prepare a place for you, he didn't build out, pull out his building license, but he would have had one. He was saying, I know how to build, and I'm going to get one for you. There's no coincidence in all of this. Jesus was, the, was a tecton. He was a worker in wood and of stone. That's the, the reference to Jesus. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Hebrews was written about AD 60, AD 70, about 40 years after Jesus had left. And the message there is in Hebrews 11 that he has already prepared for them a city. The message is that Joseph went home and he worked so flat out that in a few weeks he had the extension done. But the father was listening as to what Mary was doing. Now, I don't know what Mary was doing. But we know she's been to Babylon. 
fact, she married Babylon. God had to call her out of Babylon. Come out of her, my people. She loved to holiday in Laodicea. And these things just protracted it. Jesus would love to have come back. The, sit, the room's been finished for a long time. But he waits. He waits. And he waits today still. He waits for me. And he waits for you. And there's nothing that can keep us out of that city. There's nothing that can keep us from meeting Jesus as our beloved Savior except our own choice. And the moment we say yes to Jesus, we are accepted. The moment we say yes, he'll give us a new heart and a new spirit. He'll come to live within us. And as he does that, our behavior begins to change. Behavior won't change your heart. But if you have a changed heart, your behavior will change. And when it says of Jesus when he comes, his bride is identified as those who have the faith of Jesus, they trust him, and they keep the commandments of God. Why do they keep the commandments of God? Because they've been given a new heart where his law and his character has been stamped. That is my work, day by day. That is your work. And the question I ask myself this morning is the question that I ask you. If Jesus were to come today, would I be ready? Would you be ready? Have you said yes to Jesus except? No exceptions. He that is not with me, said Jesus, is against me. He's done all he can and he waits for us, not only for us to get ready, to be ready, but also to be a part of that vast army throughout the world that witness to encourage others to be ready to. May God bless us each one to be faithful in walking with Jesus day by day and then in that great day soon when the corridor of the eastern sky bursts asunder and in the distance we see a small cloud about the size of a man's hand and as that cloud comes closer it becomes brighter and soon we see that it, it puts the sun into the shadows. It's the coming of the Son of Man. And we lift up our eyes and say, this is our God. We have waited for him. We're so glad we'll rejoice in his salvation. That can be our experience as we spend time with him every day. May God bless us. To that end is my prayer for us each one. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABNAustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. 
Thank you for your prayers and financial support. short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com Whilst the long night of the dark ages covered Europe and darkness covered the people, the lamp of truth still shone brightly in Scotland and Ireland. These two countries on the brink of the known world stood like a wall to resist the menace of advancing religious tyranny. Scotland in particular, like the Waldenses in northern Italy, found in her rugged mountains a fortress. Iona is an isolated island that has become famous in Christian history. It became a central point to the Celtic church for many centuries, preserving true biblical faith, teaching, educating, and sending out missionaries. The story of Iona starts with a man by the name of Columba, who was actually from Ireland and was born of royal descent. He lived in Ireland and worked there till the age of 32. And from the ages of 25 to 32, he is credited with raising up over 300 churches, having a missionary spirit burning deep within him. He set sail from Derry in the year 563 with 200 of his companions and came to Scotland. They landed here in Iona, just off the coast of the Isle of Mull, in this bay, which is today named Columbus Bay. Despite finding a windswept and barren island, they built houses, planted crops, and founded a Christian school, which would later attain the highest reputation for the pursuit of biblical study and science. The students had a well-rounded education, and in addition to their classes, they would spend time in physical labor, in gardening, in baking, in farming, and in prayer and singing. The students would frequently have to spend 18 years of study before they were ordained for the gospel ministry. It was not a monastery, and they were not monks. It was a great mission training institute. The Bible was central to Columba and the school here in Iona. Columba built a church on the Bible and the Bible alone and is credited with copying 300 copies of the New Testament himself with his own hands. Imagine how many copies his students and fellow faculty produced over the many years the school was based here on this little island of Iona. They followed the commandments of the Bible, including keeping the fourth commandment. In fact, the church here in Iona kept the Sabbath for several centuries. In many ways, the believers here were preserving a faith that was handed down to them over the generations since the earliest believers. They did not see themselves as reformers or as breaking away from Rome, for the faith that they kept had been around much longer. Columba labored here for 34 years before passing to his rest on the 9th of June, which was a Sabbath day. 
Iona would for many centuries be a leading center of the Celtic church, sending missionaries out from the shores of Scotland, flowing to the continental church. Columbus followers would hold this island for 641 years before they were driven out by the Benedictine monks. Iona stands to us today and gives us lessons in the missionary work that took place here. While today many people come for a time of peace, reflection, and contemplation, a place where they can feel closer to God, we cannot deny the work that took place here. Maybe God is calling you to go and get trained, like the missionaries who would come here to be trained and would go out for service. Maybe God is calling you to be trained for mission service. Maybe he's calling you to a life of full-time ministry. Maybe God is calling you to change the whole course of your life. And if God is calling you, harden not your heart and follow the Lord's leading. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. Coming up next, we have Chris Owenby with The Love Song. The beautiful works of your hands, your magnificent glory. The incredible depths of your love There's no words left to describe you with your beautiful The warmth of your touch Your magnificent splendor Changed my life, oh, 
It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.